Welcome to Base Talk with Hagen and Hayes. Today's topic is, well, we have a very special guest, one of my former teachers, the fantastic Bronwyn Nash. Bronwyn, thank you for being here with us today. We're really honored to have you with us. Well, please, the honor is all mine. I'm really a dinosaur. I come from a different age altogether from we people nowadays. Well, but, it's, uh, it's it just... was all very different, and maybe maybe it was of interest. Definitely of interest. Tell us, what was it like starting out? You were one of the pioneer female double bass players in the world. How hard was it? How many people discouraged you? How much gumption of your own did it take? Um, a hell of a lot. But But the reason that I did it was that I was so knocked out by the capabilities of the bass in the hands of Gary Carr. That, and I was absolutely determined. My, my view was, if one person can do this, it's possible for somebody else to do it. And so I did succeed in going and um, I actually went to, um, I had five children, by the way, before I started to play the bass, although I had wow. been a cellist initially. Mm -hmm. um, and had gone to college, Royal Manchester College of Music. I'd gone on the cello. Didn't had a terrible one of those awful incidents with a a, a teacher who tried it on with me. Mm. And of course, in those days, they didn't believe you. And so I sort of got demoted from being the top, the top level of of uh, class, as it were, in right. the college, to being pushed to the also rounds. And so, but of course, I didn't realise that at the time. It's only. Nowadays, looking back, you, you know, know of it happening now and what you know how it is. Um, but anyway, but then after I'd had these children, I was married to the viola player, the, the principal viola in the Northern Symphony Orchestra. And um, the reason the, the reason I landed up playing the bass was that it was this extraordinary woman who, in Newcastle on Tyne, which is in northeast England. Um, where this young new orchestra had set up in Northern Symphonia, which is happily still going. Um, she was a remarkable musician, a wonderful cellist, and had been in Paris during the 20s and 30s and been taught by Feuermann. And anyway, she was uh, she ran a um, an evening class of an orchestra, small orchestra, and she said to me, I've got a bass which nobody plays, if you would like to play it and you can borrow it and have it and learn it as long as you come and play in my orchestra every week. And that's actually how I started. Um, and it was just, I'd actually always loved looking at basses and I'd loved the sound when I was in playing orchestrally and all of that. Um, and um, anyway, it was, it was, I won't go into it, uh, in, but it was absolutely marvellous to sort of learn. And I basically sort of kind of taught myself mm. as best I could from what I already knew, which is a good thing because I didn't start with all the, oh, no, you don't do this on the bass. Oh, no, we don't do that on the bass. This is how we do it on the bass. It was, I'm trying to make a sound here. I know roughly how to do it. I'm going to do it the best I can. But also, the, the, um, there was only one bass in, this, in the Northern Symphony Orchestra. It was a chamber orchestra. And he was very keen on sort of alternative things. And um, he, he gave me a few pointers and well, you know, sort of lessons. And he used all four fingers, you see, that was the crucial thing. What he, he called it guitar, because he, he'd started from a sort of jazz side and become a classical musician from having been a youngster doing all the, the pop groups and playing a bit of jazz and sort of 
climbing up that way and then got into college and became a classical player. So I was lucky really in that because he, he was willing to, and he could see the, the, the point of sort of being more agile in your playing with your left hand. Anyway, um, but then the interesting thing is that I started playing the bass and you know, within six months of playing the bass in this little orchestra, and then, of course, as soon as you did one thing, people asked you to do another. And bassists were not sick on the ground around Newcastle on time, irrespective of whether they were male or female. So I got asked to do all sorts of things with the most horrendously awful groups of players, that kind of sort of amateur players, you're looking back, but for me, incredibly useful because I was sort of exposed and having to do things on my own and work things out, which I did. And then um, uh, within six months of actually sort of starting all of that, I was actually asked to go and play second bass in the Symphonia. And I remember that the programme that first time was Dumbarton Oaks and Le Bourgeois Gentilhomme, neither of which are particularly straightforward for the bass. But my husband said, you've got to learn every note. And he virtually sort of stood, up, stood over me while I practiced so that I knew absolutely everything inside out. So I didn't sort of, well, so I didn't embarrass him basically. So basically I sort of found myself there. As a consequence of that, because I was by this time I'd been released by the miniskirt and the tights and everything, and was um, and had yet yeah, I got contact lenses instead of glasses because I'd been embarrassed by having to wear glasses all my life. Um, and the, the, uh, the press took note of the fact that I was playing with a symphonia, and some guy rang up and said he'd like to do a piece about me playing with the symphonia because I they knew I had five children how I was combining the two together. And so he came around and he took these photos and um, then wrote, and he turned out to be a whole page piece. It was absolutely enormous on in the, the main evening paper in Newcastle. And it sort of gave me a fright because I thought, God, people are actually noticing me. I can't just be in the background bumbling around. I've got to do this properly because people are going to notice otherwise. But then the crucial thing was the, the all time, sort of memorable moment which directed me into the course that I then took was when my in those days there was no Radio 3 there was no classical music per se on the radio but what there was was a thing called a third program which did arts and they had music on that and they had some late a late night sort of recital thing and my husband came dashing into the kitchen and said you've got to come and listen to this you've got to come and listen to this so I rushed off and it was actually Gary Carr playing La Sonambula. And he said, this is a double bass. And I heard it, I listened to it, and I just thought, how in heaven's name do you do that? It was just, it was like, you know, it was like a sort of thunderclap or lightning flash or whatever. And um, and then coincident, well, I suppose he was making, that's right, he was making a visit to, the, and he was very young, had short hair, Short back and sides, very, very clean cut guy with a tie and collar, not a bit like what we expect of Gary later on in with Gary with his, uh, you know, Afro haircut and everything. Um, but uh, the BBC also did, I think it was on a, something like a Wednesday night, 
last thing on the television, black and white television, they had a, a recital. Uh, it was a couple of small pieces. I remember seeing Jacqueline, du the first time I ever saw Jacqueline Dupre was actually on that when she was being accompanied by her mother, both in these great glorious crinoline gowns, mm -hmm. um, looking like that. I mean, but she sort of burst upon the scene like that. Anyway, he was on it and he played. I I, I look back on it and I, I've always thought he played it unaccompanied, but maybe there wasn't accompanied is um the oh god what's the name what's it called barcarol offenbar yes barcarol and he he did it all sort of double stops and stuff and it was it was totally remarkable and then the moment of actually seeing somebody doing that as well as hearing what they were doing was you know i've got to, i've got to find out about this and as it happened, at the time, the, the Symphonia Orchestra had a Canadian um, conductor, young Canadian, called Boris Brott. I don't know whether either of you have ever heard of him, but he, he was full of muscle and go, and he did great publicity work for the Symphonia and got it sort of recognised because it was going around. We didn't realise it was virtually skint at the, every last, at the end of every week. It had no Arts Council support at all and people local sort of landed gentry people kept sort of shoveling a the odd couple of thousand towards it just to keep it going um and some very notable people who did keep it going um but he was there and he did a lot of um publicity in terms of and raising the profile and um some television we had four television programs with tiny East television and I was actually in, in that orchestra because it was had to be slightly bigger than normal. So that was quite fun as well. Um, and it made me realise how important it is to be seen. And that was a crucial thing in my the whole thing. But anyway, then Gary Carr came over and played some solos with the orchestra as a consequence of Boris Brock getting him over. And I actually managed to ask him, you know, if I could get myself over to Canada, would you teach me some lessons? And he said, God, God I, will. <laughs> I expect he didn't think I ever would get there, but I did. I did get there. And I spent six weeks there um, practicing his exercises religiously in Halifax in a little sort of bed and breakfast place. Um, and with, with a group of other his students, it was my first um, first exposure to the sort of everybody playing exercises all together and how useful that is in terms of awareness of what other people are doing, being able to criticise and compare yourself with what other people are doing. And this whole sort of adjustment thing within a group, which I think is so important in terms of learning any instrument, really, actually, because, you know, we can all do it brilliantly in our back room, can't we? But <laughs> so um, that's that's really where where you know how it all started and then when I got back I'm afraid I did sort of by this time I realized it looked quite good and it was a bit unusual and I did a bit of trading on that but that in, it, that has its downside because um, um, at that time women were not doing anything I mean have either of you ever seen a film called Made in Dagenham no you haven't well I suggest you watch it because it's all about um it's about a group of women who worked for Ford cars in Dagenham. There was a big factory making Ford cars. 
and they sewed all the seats, the, the, the seat covers. They and they were incredibly skilled, and they were refused the proper skilled rate for of of pay. It mm. wasn't considered to be as important as what the men were doing, and yet, it, anyway, they went on strike. And as a consequence of that, they actually brought the whole of Ford to a standstill across the world. Because would you believe it? They were making the seats for all the Ford cars across the world. It was the only place that Ford had. And they brought they brought it to its knees. And as a, and a consequence of all of the upturn of that, the then Labour government brought in equal pay for women. But, it, you know, it was an extraordinary time because up until then, everybody, if you were a woman, you didn't get whatever, whatever you, even if you were doing exactly the same job as a man on a line, you were getting 70% of what he was getting. Yeah. And so it yeah. was difficult to convince people that you were any good. And I I got a lot of criticism that, oh, oh people just book her because she looks good and she's good at talking. Because that was the other thing I did. I, I didn't do, I, I didn't try and play music that had been specifically written for the bass because most of it, never, nobody's ever heard of it. So I did arrangements all the time, which is what I did at the time, because I, if they could hear um, Greensleeves arranged by Owen Williams on the double bass and piano, it was somehow more convincing than playing something by somebody that nobody had ever heard of. Sure. Because they knew what it was supposed to sound like and they could make them flowers. So it did work, but it, it's, it, it's, there's still a place for it, but the, things have changed now. This is why I say I'm a dinosaur. More like a trailblazer. Well, maybe I was, except nobody wanted to trail in my blaze, as it were. Because, <laughs> because... I, think it, I think people just had a delayed reaction. You know, it took a while. It sounds to me like you were very brave. And whether you knew at the time or not what an influence you were having on people, you just said, I want to do this. I'm going to do it. And that takes a lot of gumption. And you have to be very brave and strong to well, do that. I, yes, but I'll tell you what else I had was that I had to earn money. I mean, this was the crucial thing because by this time, I'm, you know, some time along, my marriage had broken up and I was on my own with five children to support. Mm. And it was interesting that, uh, you know, I was doing a, a, a couple of days teaching locally, mostly bass, but a bit of cello, um, because that's how I started. And I've always, always felt that I should be always be putting back something into the system that gave me the start that I had. Um, but, and it was interesting that if I did a, I don't know what the figures were, but say I was getting three hundred and fifty pounds for a recital, I would get three hundred and fifty pounds for a three-minute television slot on an afternoon chat program. Ah. And my goodness, they weren't only useful monetarily, but they were very, very useful in terms of publicity because people got yes. to know. And then the other thing in this country in those days, um, there were music clubs and little festivals. There still are, but a tiny number by comparison uh, with, with what there were then. But of course, there was no internet or anything. and You had to do everything by post. So the one thing that I, my children were quite use, useful for, I'd put them in line and they would stuff the envelopes and stick the stamps on and stick the labels on. And somebody, the last one would lick the envelopes and close them. 
Perfect. And that was quite useful. But I, I would be habitually sending out, you know, three to four hundred of those um, annually yeah. uh, in order to get the work. But I, I got the work and um, I just carried on. But I, to get back to your thing, the driving thing that I've always I always had in those days was to get people hearing the bass and the bass on its own and what it could actually do as better as Gary used to call it, you know, the bel canto, the singing bass. Mm -hmm. Because nobody, people used to come up to me and say, I never realised that instrument could actually make that beautiful sound. It's like, a, you always said it's like a cello. Well, it is mostly like a cello. The register is hardly, you know, it just goes a bit lower yeah. um, and doesn't go quite as high. But, uh, you, you know, but it, normally it's never, th never seen. So... One of my things was to develop uh, concerts for children, and I actually consider that was my greatest um, my greatest contribution to it all. I don't know how many children ended up playing the double bass, but I think it must have. I, mean, I, I literally, I, I actually played to thousands and thousands and thousands of children because I devised a way of making a program. It was actually a story, a musical story which I sold as being suitable for the whole of a primary school. And I concentrated incidentally on the very young children. Not, I didn't bother so much. If they wanted me to go to a secondary school, then I did something slightly different. But mm -hmm. the, um, and I had this character, Bartholomew, the beautiful bass, who did these various things. Um, and that, that was the one that, that I, I think, as I say, and in, a, in a curious way, I think I enjoyed those more than anything. They didn't pay terribly well because, and we would do sort of four in a day, mm -hmm. uh, rushing from one school to another in an area, and I think it was, you know, it was quite, it was quite a good um, sort of contribution to what children were hearing at the time. Um, yeah. So. You talked about going to study with Gary. Um, yeah. It sounds so easy, doesn't it? Now, uh, I'm just going to Canada to study with somebody. And it must have been completely different when you went. And what were the challenges you had of getting from here to there? Oh, well, the challenge, the main challenge was getting them to accept that. The, I mean, the base came in the, I bought a ticket for the base. So it came in the cabin with me. Mm. And the main challenge was when you got to the desk and you wanted, to, and so the only way it would accept me was um, Mr. Instrument Nash. That's what it, it it had to have that it, as it came when it came as a double bass that was no good. But it, I'll tell you an interesting thing. On one of those occasions, I arrived with my bass, you know, to go go through the desk and everything, and there was somebody else with a grandfather clock who was doing the same. <laughs> I'm sure, that's the only time there's been a grandfather clock and a double bass on the same plane. Couldn't make that up though, could you? You really couldn't. No, you couldn't, could you? And I have to say, it wasn't one of those really huge double um, thing. It was what they call a grandmother clock. So it's about the same height as a person. So what did um, you want to carry when you, because you'd heard him play, uh, you'd heard him live. And what did, yes. what did you want from him? What did I want? What did what you did, want I him? wanted to find the secret, the secret of the singing sound, which I found. I'd already, I'd already started standing up because I'd noticed him, he went, this was the thing when I saw him playing the um, Barcarolle, he was standing up and I thought that was totally unusual. Nobody ever stood up in those days. 
In fact, one of the Halle people I know um, actually fell asleep sitting on his stool and actually fell off and down the fell down the tears. You know, in, luckily during a rehearsal, not 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 during the show. But um, so I was already doing that, and I, I was already aware of the different feel under your left. You know, the whole of your left arm is different when you're standing up. Yeah. You're no longer pressing the strings down. The bass is pushing against you, which means that the activity in this arm is different from when you're just back here as a cellist using your fingers. You don't have anything like the strength and muscle in your hand and fingers that you do in the, the weight of your arm. You're using weight instead of muscle. And it makes it more relaxed and you're able to do more with the left hand. At least that's what I found. But I didn't know about the no rosin business and playing nearer the bridge and slowing the, the speed of the bow. That was absolutely revolutionary. And it was absolutely not accepted by so many bass players back here at the time. This was, uh, throw your rosin away. The bass players had music stands festooned with all kinds of gadgets that they might need in the course of whatever it was they were doing, including various types of rosin. I kid you not, there was a sort of very heavy, sticky rosin you put on if you're going to do a lot of grumbling around on the bottom strings, but something a bit lighter for the, if you're doing a lot of sort of on the top two strings. And I, I mean, so it, it was it was all about um, using stuff to do things instead of actually doing it yourself. So the throwing the, throwing the, I think I didn't put any rosin on at all in those six weeks I was there in Halifax. I think because I just wore out all the rosin that was already on it. <laughs> Um, and, but then the, the 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 other thing was that um, Gary's whole sort of um, open approach about everything. There was nothing that he ever held back. It was all give, give, give. And the fact that there was this group, I think there were about five or six of us that were um, sort of in and around the environs who got together every day for, I don't know, I can't remember how long, but to do all the exercises together. And there was this whole sort of um, feeling of bonhomie, you know, and this, we're all in this together and this is, this is exciting. The only embarrassing moment when when we were playing something and I needed to, uh, I got a pencil mark that was wrong and I said, has anybody got a rubber? Well, it's all right for you and me, David, but you don't say that over in the States or in Canada. No. Especially not for a lady. <laughs> no. I'm sure it was slightly scandalous or humorous. Well, there was a sort of stunned silence. <laughs> that was the thing. Sort of, you know. I think there was one other girl, Elizabeth Peterson, who was actually, she played in Halifax Orchestra. And she was a great Gary fan. And um, um, she, she used to come to some of those sessions. And so, but the rest of them were all blokes. Of all kinds of different different kinds. I know I, I can't remember where they all came from, but from different places. Um, but there's just sort of, why is she asking this? You know, <laughs> I don't know what went through their minds, but, um, <laughs> but there we are. Now um, you were talking about teaching, and I I agree. I feel it's important to share what we have figured out about this beautiful beast that we love. And, and pass that to the next generation. I have students that are older than I am. I have students that are 
very young, you know, it's, but I think it's an important thing to do. And I know you taught a lot, but you also taught the young David Hayes. What was that like? Uh, oh, it was great. It was great because he was very solemn, very solemn and very determined. And in a quiet kind of way, he was not going to be deflected. And uh, that was that's a, that's a quality that I admire so much in everybody because none of us has an easy time. You know, we think people have an easy time, but nobody does. Everybody's fighting, struggling. And uh, he basically, I saw a little bit the same thing. He was inspired and he wanted to do the best that he possibly could. And so um, he used to, he might have told you, he used to come to my house together with uh, one other or possibly two others for a weekend. And bear in mind, I have five children. So somehow we, we, and I think, no, my eldest told me she was never there. She'd gone to university by then. And it was only in term time that this happened. But anyway, and I used to set them going in the music room, which was above the kitchen, uh, doing the exercises. And um, if I heard something that needed, because I was having to cook and do all the usual things as well, um, I would shout at them and they could hear me through the floor. Do you remember that, David? I do very well. We used to be terrified. <laughs> well, you, so I didn't think terrified at all. I thought you'd give as good as you got. We, it was uh, Andrew Durbin and I. It used to be two of us used to come. Yeah. And we, uh, I, I uh, travelled on a Friday. You'd meet me at Bangor Station, and then we'd stay until Monday morning. Then you took me back to Bangor Station. And yeah, yeah. I think you'd had four children at home, uh, plus Did the two ones. Yeah. So yeah. it was quite a full house, wasn't it? It was, yes, but they were you. The children were used to it. I mean, the children's house was a full house just with them, so they were they were kind of used to it. But they, they also, they, they, yes, it was. Um, but I used to do cooking in advance. That was one of my great savings things. Was I made? I had a huge chest freezer, a freezer, and I would fill that up with meals ready. Because uh, that's how I did it when I was traveling. And sometimes I'd be away, up, you know, so a week or 10 days, I'd be away and the children would be going to school. And um, everything was labeled in the freezer. So they they got it out in the morning and put it on the top of the agar when they went to school. And then it was it was unfrozen. And then they just put it in the oven for, so that they... Honestly, it wouldn't be allowed nowadays. I'm sure, I'm sure social services would be around, <laughs> complaining and everything. But, but you know, as you know, my parents were just up the track. It wasn't as if they were completely alone. They would have been more alone if they'd been in a city, I think, actually. Yeah. Um, and so my mother was, was popping in and checking that everything was all right. And they knew where to go if there was any sort of problem. And I think it made them made them self-sufficient. I hope it did anyway. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. So that, is... But I have to say that, that um, you know, all um, David is a sort of kind of star. That, God, uh, there are other stars. Everybody's a star in their own way. But David, by um, creating this um, quite extraordinary career for himself, yes. which isn't just playing the bass, but contributing this vast amount of material for teachers and players yes. of all different kinds in all different situations it's it's a, a, an output which is quite extraordinary and useful to the point of 
you know, how and ever do we manage without it? Right. I think I was lucky, though, in my teachers, you know, because you were commissioning music and you were playing all this solo repertoire and I saw you doing it. Um, mm. And I, I think I've, I've never taken no for an answer. I think maybe just when I was younger, it was maybe less obvious. Um, mm. But I, I mentioned to a friend that I used to be, you know, I'm so enthusiastic. And he said, well, you're exactly the same when you're 18. You haven't changed. You've just no, got old. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, well, I, I thought I got worse. He says, no, no, you were just as bad then. So that, <laughs> I'm quite surprised by that. Um, but I've always been inspired by other people. And, and that's that's the nice thing, is you and I have kept in touch since the 19, late 1970s, which is nice. But I saw you doing it, and you didn't take no for an answer. And I liked that. Um, well, I had to take no. I sometimes had to take no for an answer, but I would go somewhere else and ask the same question until yeah, I exactly. got to that's exactly how I've done it. It's mm. and Susan said, you know, we've talked about this many times. And your your mama said, Susan, if you're not invited to the party, have your own party. Yeah. And this is ex it's such yeah. a great way of looking at things. Mm -hmm. And I've always done that as a bass player. You're you're always on the the margins of things, and you're yes. always you're never part of the string family. Really, it doesn't no. matter how much they say. We, we're on our own. So I've I've just used that to my own uh, benefit, really. Mm. Yeah, but, but I was going to, what I would say about you when I, I knew you when, you when you were young was that you were a lot quieter than you are now. Was, <laughs> was you, I? You'd say you were terrified. Of, maybe I did terrify you into <laughs> silence, but you didn't contribute a great deal back, but I could see that you, you were working a lot of stuff out in your head all the time. That was whirring away like mad, but you didn't actually say much back to me that I recall. I think there were lots more with bigger personalities and more to say. Um, and I'm not sure when I was younger, I had the confidence to, to say it. I, I may have thought it, but I probably wouldn't have said it. Now I, I would say it, you know, without thinking. It's, now yeah. I don't care. <laughs> now you don't care. No, exactly. Yes, yes. But I think you grow into the person. I think you're always, you're there from the start. But I, mm. think, I think with life, I think gradually you grow, you develop into the person that you really are. Um yeah, I, I, yeah, I quite like me. It, you know, until age fifty, I didn't like me, and then once I hit fifty, well, I'm not going to live to a hundred. I may as well start liking me. And I, I, yeah, I'm okay actually. I'm doing the best I can, and it's, it's. Yeah, I think I you think feel much happier then. That is always the thing that if you're mm -hmm. doing the best that you can and you don't mm -hmm. stop. Yeah, I think exactly. that's the best. Mm. Yeah, but uh, to get back to this business about the no thing, what I did find and what what. I mean, I was driven out of the out of the performing by this physical thing which happened to me, where I had damaged my hip and then arthritis got into it and made me lamer and lamer. I mean, some of those last those last three years of playing were performing were absolute physical agony. But it was only when I had to stop when I found would find myself playing and then the leg would actually an excruciating pain and it would collapse. And then oh. if I wasn't absolutely on the ball to take everything onto the, my left leg, I would have fallen over. And I was thinking, I thought to myself, this is getting too hairy. And that's when I actually had to stop actually performing. But one of the really depressing things about all of that was the refusal of the sort of musical, um, musical field in this country to actually accept. I was, I used, talked about being on the margins. I was absolutely kept on the margins. 
And the only way that I got out of the margins was by going down this populist route, mm -hmm. mainly through little things on the telly. And I, 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 you know, that wasn't right. There should have been some recognition for what I was doing. But And there were personalities involved who were on the other side who were absolutely convinced that the, the, the traditional way of playing the bass and the traditional things you did, in, in other words, in the symphony orchestra, as a gang of 10 or whatever, that was the only way. There was no alternative and they weren't going to give, in fact, they were going to actually stand in your way and put in a bad word for you because I, I did get messages back about how bad words had been put in, such as, well, don't expect very much for her. She looks good, <sighs> but she's it's awful. <sighs> you know, and, and, and that kind of thing. I, it's very difficult to get past that. And it wore me out on top of the physical wearing out. I wish I, well, in many ways, I wish I had stuck at it and gone back in, but you can't turn the clock back. I was approaching 60 at that point. And, um, you know, I, I'd been uh, appointed as a, an associated board examiner. So I was able to kind of keep the wolf from the door by doing that. They did overlap for a while, but then, as I say, this whole physical thing was just, just too much to manage. Sure. However, I'm where I am. <laughs> well, and I did I end up, maybe maybe you don't know this, Susan, but, you know, I'm actually a very good musical saw player. Did you know that? No kidding. Yes, I oh, am. I have, I have a friend from here that's a viola player that, that plays the musical saw. Do you have it nearby? No, I don't, because I'm not at home. Okay. But, but you, it's, it's on, you can hear all these things on, on the website that I've got. Yes, yes. Um, but... The, that 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 came about because one of the my one of the things that I did um, in performance was I developed this program called Slap and Tickle, which is slap the bass, tickle the ivories, in mm. conjunction with a very very fine pianist called um, Morris Horhat, and he was a classical pianist, but but who did um, who who was also a very very good popular piano player, and in fact made a huge study of it and and also a jazz player. And we just concocted these sort of, they were crossover programs, which now are very popular. But in those days, nobody did them. And in those days, you know, nobody talked to an audience. Did you know that? You came on and you played and you went off. And you came on and you played and you went off. But we came on and we chatted to people and we played and we chatted to them again. And then we went off and then we came back and chatted a bit more and played. That's very so groundbreaking. Hmm? It was, that was very that groundbreaking. Was, it was, yes. But yeah. you see, this kept breaking these grounds all the time. But nobody wanted to know. You know, this is this is not how we do it. We don't do it like this. You know, uh, there's a way that you do things. But anyway, um, but so that and uh, we had an opening. And this is how you can turn something which is bad to your advantage, because I was having trouble carrying the bass with my hip getting worse and worse. I had been having the bass on the stage already and I just walk up to pick it up and go on from there. But then I thought, well, what, isn't there some way that we can make something out, you know, make something out of coming on with the bass? So do you know the, the um, that song, The Stripper? You know, well, Anyway, Morris played that, and I would wheel the bass on on a on a wheel, and I would actually strip it 
with all the gestures as if I was, it was a striptease. Have you ever seen a striptease artist in the in the flesh? You probably haven't. No. <laughs> but you know, in my youth, in, in going to Manchester, the old vaudeville was still up and running in the, in the theatres. Sure. Lots of theatres around. And I did see a few of these ladies doing it. They were absolutely remarkable. I mean, mm. you know, there's, 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 a lot of them were well past the age where they should be doing it. But the... The, the feeling and the artistry and that it was it, it it was so evocative i mean it was just incredible the way they did that so i sort of incorporated that into opening the base and of course it got the thing off to a nice light light-hearted touch uh, sort of way uh, you know and i was sort of saying to people look here i'm not going to play a whole lot of solemn music on the double bass here we're going to have fun you know you're allowed to laugh Right. And um, that was, I think I, I did quite a lot of good with that. Sure. You know, I was just yesterday talking to my students at Berkeley College of Music, and I was saying when I was in graduate school, I was giving my recitals that, you know, are required. And I said, my teacher would say, you do not speak to the audience. You don't even acknowledge them. You bow but you don't make eye contact with anyone. You pick a spot on the wall in the back of the concert hall and you look at that and you don't look at the people, they don't exist. And I said, I like to talk to my audience. I like to tell them about the music or about the instrument. Mm. I said, but back in college, it was not allowed. And just like you said, I said, this is not how we do it, you know, and it just wasn't allowed. And I think that my students today, they all, they were shocked because yeah. they're so used to more of a sort of give and take from the artist on stage with the audience. It's a case of embracing. You yes. embrace your audience and you bring them to you and you communicate. And I have to say, actually, Susan, that the thing that it was absolute agony when I had decided I couldn't go back to playing again. I bet. Because the thing I missed most was the communication. This uh, yeah. opportunity to go out and actually give something to people and get their feeling back again. It right. was quite devastating, really. It took me a long, long time to get over that. Yeah. However, there we are. How did, how did you deal with that? Because I think a lot of bass players come to a point where something in their body just sort of wears out, whether it's from playing the bass or just from life. Um, mm. How do you get past or, or get through that time of, I can't play the bass at this point? Well, for me, I suppose I was lucky that I was doing the examining. And with that, there's a kid coming in every quarter of an hour, a new kid. Mm, yeah. And you, you you do that communication thing with, with them. Mm. And uh, I have to say, initially, I was pretty hopeless at it. But because I was actually very unhappy at that time. Um, and I was making the best of what I could. But that's what I learned to do. But I've never, I've never actually, I've never actually lost that sort of mini grief of not mm. being able to go out and, and play. I mean, somebody just a year ago asked me if I'd go and just, she was having an 80th, she's a harpist, was having an 80th birthday concert, uh, you know, celebration. She's done a huge amount for the harp in terms of developing a harp festival and things, which has now been running for about 30 years and nice. done a whole lot like that. And she, she wanted to do the dance sacre profound. Oh, um, yes. 
which is not a difficult piece but I had to say no because now I've got this anomaly in my eyes mm. which makes me see double and oh. by the time you put on the glasses to do that you can't actually you you can't look at the conductor and then right. back at the music quickly enough and sure. so not uh, and anyway the place where she was going to have it you have to walk up about 10 very steep steps onto the Ooh. stage that and then i would have to come down again as well and right. uh, and so sometimes when you when you realize reality you you're not just chickening out no you've had to do you've had your go and you've got to rem try and remember the good things you did but i'm sure i'm not i'm sure you're the same if you do a recital all you ever remember is the thing that goes wrong. Yes. And you just, you know, you don't remember all the bits that were really, really good. Right. And I think that you have to sort of concentrate on that, on the yeah. good things that you've contributed and know that you've you've done. I mean, look at David, what, what how he's turned out. And I must have had some sort of influence on him. <laughs> so, and I, I, you know, anyone who wanted to um, be a, play the bass as a solo instrument mm -hmm. uh, after me will have known that I did it first. So right. there, there is, it, there's an importance in being that, even if yes. it was, you know, you are the prow of the, the, the boat cleaving through the waves and people who come behind. You influence me far, far more what? than I, you influence me far more than you realize. Um, Do I? Yeah, just because you did it and you got up there and played Bottasini when very few other well, certain, very few Brits were playing Bottasini. And you you are the one who um, taught me harmonics, how to play. You made me learn the harmonics from the Dragonetti Concerto. I remember mm. one lesson in the... Uh, I, I was staying in the little bedroom off the, the kitchen. Um, <laughs> and uh, and I, I propped the music on the, the uh, windowsill. And I was learning to play these harmonics. And I, I've taught harmonics throughout my teaching career. Yeah. And I remember doing a, a thing. It's just as a way of introducing them to younger players. And I've, I've arranged lots of quartets. So bass yeah. four only plays three notes, G, D, and A. Yeah. And you yeah. go one in three chance of getting it right. So, and even if you get it wrong, it'll still sound nice. Yeah. Um, exactly. And somebody once said, one of my pupils, I was walking past, he was talking to his parents, and he said, Mr. Hayes is mad on harmonics. And, it's, <laughs> and that's come from you. And I think one of the best things I sell is I, I wrote a book called Harmonious Harmonics, which is just trios and quartets for harmonics. Just a, um, a really easy way of of playing them and taking the, the stress out of it. Because, you, yes, you know, with bass players, you don't play harmonics until you get to a certain level. And I just like the idea that even youngsters can play. So you, now when I, I write a piece, I'll put harmonics in in fourth position, just the first finger oh. D. First oh, thing, yeah, because everybody yes. can play them. It's it's a, such a nice way of introducing. So you in, inspired me for that. I'm sure you didn't realize at the time, um, but also the fact that you you were doing it, and that's, um, and you were doing it despite the, I, I think the, sort of hostility from lots of other bass players, and I, I've encountered exactly the same. Um, but as you get older, you don't care. You care even less. Because as I say, you're doing your best, and and you you inspired me from that. So, you, as I say, you probably didn't realize it, but you really were one of the key figures in my my development as a bass player and musician. 
well, um, hopefully it was good. Well, it sounds as if it was quite good, so I'm it's glad fantastic. about that. I'll tell you yeah. about what I felt about the harmonics and starting with harmonics. And I have to tell you, I do this with cellists as well, which they never normally do. Is It's so easy to get the sound and it's always in tune. You know, it's it's so it's so brilliant, and the, 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 you know, you you never have a problem with, with with the sound quality because you can move the bow too fast, and it still works on a harmonic. And so, and the other thing about it was that you, the bass is a big instrument, so you're going to move. The cello is quite a big instrument, so you're going to move. So, if there are these places where you can go, where you know there's a note, and you don't have to press it down, you just put your finger on it and you play it. It gives you this positional awareness. Right from the very, very start. Mm. I, I was in Spain. I was I was working, teaching and playing in Spain. And there was a bass player from Mexico. And he mm. said, I use your harmonic book all the time, which I, you know, unless someone tells you, you have no idea. And mm. he said, a lot of the basses are really bad quality, bad strings. But when you play harmonics, it sounds really nice. So all these kids can suddenly make the bass sing, even though it's easy harmonics. And I was like, wow. And I thought, wow, I'm so pleased to hear this because no one ever tells you they play your music or it's only occasionally you hear about it. So that was, that was so so nice to hear that it's it's being played and used and, and it works, which is good. Yes, it does work. It does work. The only thing is the bass has got to be in tune. <laughs> the basses <laughs> have got to be roughly in tune with each other. That's another <laughs> issue. <laughs> but the, you know, we know the other thing about the bass, about the, the sounding of the bass is that if it sounds even halfway decent, people are impressed. I'm not saying that it doesn't say completely decent, play completely decent, but even if it's just much, much better than they thought it was going to be, you've made an impression. <laughs> and I think the bar is often very low of what people expect. Exactly, it is. <laughs> so you can actually startle people. And of course, once people have been pleasantly surprised, they sort of sit up and take notice and then you've actually got them. And then, the interesting thing, I think, is that what has happened since Gary Carr sort of burst on the scene, and because let's face it, David, I wouldn't be do wouldn't have done what I did without his inspiration and without his knowledge and without his giving of that. Right. Um, the, the what has happened is that the expectation has forced the development of generally. A much better bass stand. I was listening to that's right. Just recently, I was listening. There's a, a series of they're re-showing on the BBC television some interviews of opera singers way back in the 70s, including um, Joan Sullivan, Kiritakanawa, Montserrat, people like that, talking. And then there's bits of them. And I'm listening to the orchestras, and I'm hearing the quality of the bass in those orchestras all that time ago. And I tell you, I am not wrong when I say that the level of the quality and the standard of bass playing in normal orchestral sections is almost chalk and cheese from what it used to be. There is an expectation now that the bass line actually has a centre to the note instead of just rumble. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's a huge achievement because it's actually drag the the base you know back into m more of the whole proper expectation of accuracy in the in the yes. string section yeah it's true it's really true oh. so how many people do you teach susan <laughs> 
Um, so it's interesting at Berkeley, I have a, a couple of classes. My, one of my favorite classes is electric bass players who want to learn the double bass. So it's interesting because oh, yeah. they're kind of beginners, except there's mm -hmm. an, a lot of information that crosses over. Um, yeah. And that class usually has six players in it, which is great. It's enough so everyone can get some individual attention, yeah. but they're playing together. Like you both were talking about, it's really yeah. important for them to hear yeah. other basses. Um, mm. And then I have a couple of other classes of sort of um, better bow technique classes and an orchestral repertoire class. And I yeah. also have an ensemble that's like, right now it's a trio. Next semester, it's going to be a sextet. It's just oh, growing. The kids are so excited. I, I'm so excited. And then I have um, 12, I think it is, private students at Berkeley. And then I have another 12 private students at my home. So it's sometimes a, almost more teaching than in a week I feel I can handle with my performance schedule. But it's yeah. good. It's a good blessing. You know, it's a, I, yeah, well, it's a good problem to have. It is. I was just going to say, don't knock it. Don't look for anything easier because right. there's a limited time that you can do that anybody can do it yeah so this you hang on to that. yeah and see what life brings you buddy. right and you never know what next year will be and so no, i you i just feel really fortunate to have all of that and yeah. i get to perform as well right now and i enjoy that for as long as that lasts too because you know i've always had this sort of thought process of you don't know what tomorrow will bring so enjoy what you have yeah, today that's right absolutely yeah. yes yes yeah i have one last question and david i'm sure you have questions i'm sorry i'm asking so many but what what is one of your favorite transcriptions that you've performed or that you've created oh i've always loved the thais meditation i love that piece um, it is, I think it's, it's such a sensational piece and I played it, a lot of my transcriptions that, that I, when I first started were things that Gary had all played, but I don't think he ever did the green sleeves, the Vaughan Williams green sleeves, because I used to mm -hmm. do that a lot. That's you know, nice. the one, the Fantasia, yes. with the little, um, the lovely little clog dance in the middle, mm -hmm. um, folky clog dance, um, but the, the, the the Thais meditation, because if you know the story behind that, it's almost more heart-rending when it's played in the lower register than when it, you know, it's normally violin. But right. the violin is very, very high for the kind of agony that that bloke is going through when, he's, when yes. he realises that, you know, he, his monk, has fallen head, line and sinker mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for this courtesan with all the urges that that brings and going against everything that he thinks he's done. I mean, it's just, and um, anyway, I always used to love, and that's just off the top of the head. When we stop this, I think, oh, why didn't I say so-and-so? But that that is one. Whenever I hear it, I always stop and listen and think about it. Yeah, it's a beautiful well, the, the other piece you did play a lot was the deer hunter, the theme from the deer hunter. Well, yes, I know, but that's very short. Yeah, but it's, but, but the, the matinee is, is amazing. I've, I've played it and taught it many times. I played it in, in France, and I was doing it with a, a singer there, and he was astounded the bass could do anything, which was beyond half position. He couldn't yeah. believe it. He's absolutely amazed. I was, I was doing that. It's an operatic progress. I was doing that and Sonambula, I think. 
in the same program. And they're astounded you can do anything. You, you said, um, in, I think, the 1970s, that people were astounded the bass could sound nice. And even in 2023, again, Susan and I have talked about this many times, we're still evangelising. Even now, people come up to us or to our students and say, I didn't know the bass could sound so nice. And that's in 2023. Yeah, absolutely. So it's going to be a, a long, a long time, I think, before audiences really understand what the bass can do. Well, I think it'll be never, actually, because um, the, because the, the, the opportunities are limited. Mm. That's uh, that's one of the, the problems, I think, because I've been fortunate enough in the past couple of years to play concertos with orchestras, but not nearly as many as violinists and pianists do. Mm. And I thought, geez, you know, every time most of the audience comes up to the dressing room at the end and it's always this, I didn't know the bass could sound like this. And I'm thinking, if you heard more of it, you'd all understand. But how frequently is an orchestra going to program a double bass concerto? So we, Not very, you know, is the answer. It'll take, yeah, it'll take you know, a I was talking time. to somebody who ran an orchestra and they said, we haven't had a bass concerto for about 20 years. It's about time we had one. Hmm. And I thought, yeah, there you are. That's, that says exactly the problems we have. Once every 20 years. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Whether yes, they I... like it or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's never stopped me. Yeah, I, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And that, yeah. that's the nice thing about, about 21st centuries. You can do it. it it's, yeah. Times have changed a little bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Definitely. <laughs> well, I, this is just amazing. I feel like we could talk for five more hours, Bronwyn, and maybe we'll get to have you back either on the podcast or just for a visit with David and myself, too. Well, that and would be good. That would that be would nice. Be, it would be so wonderful. And I, I have to say thank you because women Oh, next like time you... I'll have the sword hand and I'll tell you. Oh, that. I think that sounds great. And, you know, and without someone like you... I would not have had a chance to be a bass player. And I always think I wish I could do more for the girls behind me, but I think we each just chip away a little bit. We do. We do. And, yeah. and, and it just we keeps just going. keep on doing it. And we yeah. also, we need to play for us to our strengths. Yes. We need what strengths we have. We're much more chatty and, and communicative than the blokes usually. Right. And we need no to offense, use that. David. And we need to look nice. Right. You know, and right. which we do. We we all look nice. Yeah. We never go out on a stage without looking nice. No. <laughs> no, I'd be embarrassed. I mean, you know, I may not look as nice as I want, but I sure try. And, right. yeah. <laughs> you know. We, we, we know how to make the best of ourselves. Yeah. And we do yeah. that on all fronts. And the very fact that we do it is in yes. many ways enough. Yes. You know, so, I mean, in terms of the playing, the very fact that right. we play the way that we play. Right. And we play we play differently from men. We do. Yeah, because if, if you hear women violinists, you can often tell or you yeah. suspect this. You know, right. if you come into a broadcast on yes. radio, you don't know. Just I can, for instance, I can always recognize Joshua Bell. Me too. And Gil Shaham. Yes. Yes, exactly. It could never be a woman. Right. And Janine <clears throat> Janssen's. You right. can recognize her. She's yes. always clearly a woman. Oh, yes, most definitely. Yes, it's true. It's really true. But, you know, it, it. I think it in this instruments world, we have to keep encouraging the women behind us. And, and we do. I, 
It's working. It's happening. It's slow, yes. but it's happening. It yes, it is slow. It is slow, yeah. but but change it's slow always energy. is. It is. Yeah. It is. It is. And yeah. um, just keep going. Yes. Anyway, thank you. I'm very, very uh, honoured that you asked me to take part in this. I'm very grateful, and I hope that, and it's something I've said, being of use to anyone that happens to listen to it. Oh, I'm it's sure. Fantastic. It thank you so much, Bronwyn. Yes. Please and do come back. We'd love to have yes. you again. Again, that'll be yes. fantastic. Right. I'll tell you all the same stories over and over again. <laughs> but I want to thank everyone for listening to this really special uh, time that we've spent with Bronwyn Nash and for listening to Base Talk with Hagen and Hayes. You can like and subscribe to our channel. And um, at the bottom of this broadcast, we'll put a link to Bronwyn's website so that people can go and check her out and see the incredible woman and bass player that she is. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Take care. Uh...